0: Some people say the metaverse will only be virtual. One day, farmers will use augmented reality to monitor the health of their soil and run irrigation simulations to help ensure the best yields. And urban planners will model traffic solutions in the metaverse to help decrease commute times, paving the way for less congested cities. The metaverse may be virtual, but the impact will be real. Learn more about what Meta is building for the metaverse at meta.com metaverseimpact.
1: You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. This is the Pain Pod. You want to see pain? Look at these. (laughs) Welcome to the Pain Pod. The podcast for all things pain management. Hosted by the pain guy, Dr. Mark Grofoli. We'll be collaborating with numerous pain management experts, talking about substance usage disorders, the latest treatment modalities, and most most important, focusing on the pain of our patients as leading providers of pain care. And now, here's our host, a man wanted in all 50 states, a suburban city-like mountain man, without the beard, from the hills of West Virginia, and certified in weapons of mass destruction response, it's Dr. Mark Garofoli.
2: Welcome back to the pain pot, everyone. And here today, you know, we're going to get into a topic, eh, quite frankly, like we always do. They're, you know, they keep you on the edge of your seat, right? But who out there, whether healthcare professional in general or pharmacy professional, whoever, who is not affected by law? like literally law is everywhere. If you think about it, you know, whether it was a year ago, or whether it was decades ago, when you were sitting in a school pharmacy somewhere, uh, someone had to walk into the class and, and could have said, you know, I have the most important class that you'll ever have, because in fact, it has its own test in every state. It's called pharmacy law, right? Uh, well, we, we've got one of those gentlemen here today with Dr. David Brushwood, Uh, and we're gonna have hopefully a very dynamic and uh, great conversation for everybody to be listening through, just going over some of the ins and outs of pharmacy law, especially when it comes to the pain management side of things. Uh, So please uh, take a moment everybody and uh, help me welcome uh, Dr. David Brushwood uh, to the mic.
0: Okay, well, thanks Mark. It's certainly a pleasure to be here with everyone today. Uh, The short story of my life is that I grew up in Kansas, went to the University of Kansas, got degrees in both pharmacy and law, and uh, shortly thereafter, I joined a faculty at the Philadelphia College of Pharmacy, made it to West Virginia University for a brief period of time, and then for many years was on the faculty of the University of Florida, retired there in 2014, and now I am teaching online with the University of Wyoming School of Pharmacy. We have an online master's program in drug regulatory compliance. And that's a a important project to me, helping pharmacists understand how they can comply with the law in the best interests of their patients.
2: That absolutely sounds wonderful, David. And boy, you've had quite the journey too. I mean, you were here in Mountaineer land, wild and wonderful West Virginia for a good ways. Uh, Most of uh, everyone might think, oh, well, that must be how they connected. But hey, you know, our pharmacy world is, you know, unlike others you don't need five people to know each other if you need two it's a miracle right Uh, so here we are today chatting again of course and uh, always a good good uh, conversation uh, whenever we're chatting about whatever of course but um, great to hear about all those educational efforts that you've not only in your careers past uh, but also present there david Uh, of course um, you know whether it's online or whether it's continuing education or whatnot uh, it's great to hear the you know helping us pharmacists out quite frankly uh, you know, at the corner of uh, clinical and law is where the magic really happens. Uh, we always want to be able to help our patients to the to the best of our ability and what we're allowed to do as well. Uh, so, listeners of the Pain Pod out there, th- this is where you want to tune in to. You know, really go over the uh, what what are our limitations, thresholds? What are we expected to be doing? You know, we'll cover that here today. So. I'm going to start out with a really, really big picture, perhaps the 50,000-foot view, but something that comes up in darn near every conversation I have with a bunch of pharmacists. It usually goes to the tune of, well, we talk about uh, opioid overdoses, we talk about the war on drugs, we talk about pain management, we talk about substance use disorder and addiction, and then we talk about healthcare uh, involvement, whether direct or indirect, and we land on talking about the corresponding legal responsibility for prescribers and dispensers. It always, always, always goes. To that, and I know that's happened for many of you too. Uh, in fact, you might have been the one asking you about it here and there, right? Uh, so, so David here today, what can you tell us? Um, you know that you think pharmacists need to know, and really all you know, healthcare professionals need to know when it comes to the illustrious corresponding legal responsibility uh, for prescribers and dispensers alike uh, regarding controlled substance prescriptions.
0: Well, sure, uh, that's a DEA regulation corresponding responsibility of the pharmacist or the dispenser to not knowingly, really important word, knowingly honor a purported prescription that was issued not in the usual course of professional practice or not for a legitimate medical purpose. A lot of phrases to consider, to to ponder. DEA gives us that language. They don't really define any of it. They're not like the FDA. FDA has precautions, they have warnings, they have contraindications. FDA tells us exactly what they mean by those terms. DEA doesn't do that. DEA sandbags us. They say, you have to do this stuff, but we're not gonna tell you really what it means. The most important word is knowingly. A pharmacist who fills a purported prescription hasn't necessarily violated the law. Only if the pharmacist knowingly fills that purported prescription has the pharmacist violated the law. But this idea of knowingly is confusing. DEA through uh, litigation has helped us understand that. And what they have defined it as is knows or has reason to know. So the has reason to know means there's some evidence there are some facts that would be the basis upon which a pharmacist would conclude this is a suspicious prescription. This is not a legitimate prescription. But then again, legitimate medical purpose. We look at that phrase and we ask, if legitimate medical purpose has any meaning, then illegitimate medical purpose must also have a meaning. And yet that's a hard concept. There really is no such thing as an illegitimate medical purpose because medicine is inherently legitimate. Uh, Course, usual course of professional practice sometimes gets confused with scope of practice, but scope of practice has to do with the credentials of the practitioner. Course of practice has to do with the activities in which the practitioner engages, the diagnosis, the physical examination, the taking of history, the development of a treatment plan? That's the course of professional practice. So we have a lot of questions to ask and answer ourselves, and what it boils down to is red flags. DEA has said you have to detect red flags, and you have to resolve those red flags before you can honor a controlled substance prescription. They don't give us a list of the red flags. They don't really tell us what to do with the red flags, they say, you figure it out. We'll let you know if you haven't done it right, but you just in the meantime, figure it out. So that's the responsibility we have. That's our corresponding responsibility really is to identify and address effectively red flags. At the same time, we have to make sure that we don't get in the way of legitimate pain management that we don't adopt such a conservative approach to our assessment of supposedly suspicious prescriptions that we don't deny medicine to people who need it. So this is our dual corresponding responsibility. The agency says you have a responsibility not to fill prescriptions that aren't legitimate. And the pharmacy profession, as a group of people who've dedicated ourselves, our careers, our lives, providing medicine to people we have a corresponding responsibility to honor prescriptions for people who need their medicine so that's really where it leaves us here is trying to figure out what these red flags mean and we're doing a fairly good job of that in pharmacy i think uh i
2: think i would have to agree that that's um boy i asked one question i think i have <laughs> about 12 in reply okay. uh, <laughs> Anybody along those same lines there um thank, thank you very much for that explanation David and it's uh, by no means would anyone ever expect to have like a forward answer there that it really <laughs> is that convoluted and complicated although yet in a legal sense straightforward it it's it's just of that fashion you know you know what I'm hearing though uh, it's like the old spider-man saying the uh, boy we uh, as healthcare professionals as pharmacists uh, we have a lot of power. Uh, knowledge, experience. And with that comes a lot of responsibility. So, uh, you know, with these things in mind, everything you were just stating and, and uh, all of the cases that we could probably everyone listening could have in their head if they've already experienced or heard from another pharmacist, what would be any, uh, you know, recommendations that you'd have uh, for a pharmacist to really best communicate with prescribers uh, regarding prescriptions when it gets to be that moment where you, you just need a little bit more information to fill? Perhaps a red flag, uh, perhaps it just, you know, a, a sixth sense is going off of needing more info. Well, it, I don't know if you have any real life examples or if you want to provide some recommendations for pharmacists out there.
0: Well, the best way to address a red flag is directly first with the patient. Hopefully the patients, the patients are more accessible than the prescribers are. Prescribers aren't sitting at the phone waiting for pharmacists to call. They're busy doing other things. And it may be possible to clarify a red flag with a patient fairly quickly. For example, if the patient's address on file is distant, a different three-digit zip code from the pharmacies and from the prescribers, just talking to the patient, discovering that they recently moved to town and haven't changed their address or whatever it is, uh, can help clarify what seems to be a red flag. and turn it into an amber flag or maybe even into a green flag. Contacting the prescriber is something that the DEA thinks is necessary. We all in pharmacy know that that's not a guarantee of legitimacy because prescribers can be confused or they can be duped or they can be dated. They can be dishonest. What we need to do is contact them and get some sort of documentation from them. So I recommend what pharmacists here in Florida seem to be doing, many of them, is using their ability to electronically transmit a query to the prescriber. And sometimes this is done through facsimile transmission, but it's it's not the fax machine, it's facsimile online. And they say, dear doctor, I need you to clarify this for me, please. I'm not able to fill the prescription. Terribly sorry, this is done in a very respectful way. Please make this clarification for me. This patient is using three different opioids and I would like you to explain if you will, why it's therapeutically necessary for the patient to use three different opioids or two different extended release opioids. I mean, there can be very legitimate explanations for that. It's just that the pharmacist needs to have it or why is this opioid, this ER opioid being prescribed in a quantity of 14. Maybe the doctor, the prescriber is starting the patient out and that's fine. That's a, you know, let's just see if, it, if this is an effective therapy. Generally though, extended release opioid medications are prescribed in quantities more than 14, more than a seven day supply, Q12. I'm talking about Q12. So get an explanation, then save that explanation. So many times I have had pharmacists say when there's some sort of legal proceeding, Oh, sure, I made inquiry of the doctor. I remember having done that. And I know I got back a response that was perfectly satisfactory. I just don't know where it is. I didn't save it. Uh oh. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, it's, it just doesn't do much good not to have this explanation that you can't find. Sometimes they printed it off and they stapled it to the prescription, but it disappeared. Sometimes IT came in and upgraded the system. And when IT upgrades the system, they don't always know what's important to keep. And some of these messages get lost, but regardless of that, whatever you get, keep it. When prescribers respond and say, this is my justification therapeutically, or prescribing three extended-release opioids to the same patient at the same time, then there may be, I'm, it's hard to imagine what the justification would be, but there may be one, and that's perfectly fine. No two patients are the same, and we accept justifications that make some therapeutic sense to us. Let's just keep it in case somebody asks, what were you doing?
2: absolutely wonderful it's you know what i'm always hearing and saying too if it's not dog we think about it in clinical care even too you know if it's not documented it didn't happen That can get tricky in real life we we've uh, we've all been there right um what i'm what i was also hearing there is that respect you know respect uh, upholding that because you you don't know what someone else is another healthcare professional story another a patient story you know we, we don't know those we're not privy to the info until we are. So uh, very much appreciated there for those recommendations, David. Uh, you know, the, the next line, it kind of just naturally leads us to is the okay, well, now when there's something on the fan, you know, when a pharmacist is not feeling comfortable filling a controlled substance prescription, or, or really, quite frankly, any prescription for that matter. Um, what what, um, what are any recommendations there? What, what are what should we be thinking and doing as pharmacists?
0: Yeah, great question. Obviously, pharmacists have feelings. This is what you develop as a professional person. (laughs) There are times when you say, This just doesn't feel right to me. And the reason it doesn't feel right is because you've been doing this for 20 or 25 years and you've never had something like this happen before. That doesn't necessarily mean there's anything wrong, but it does mean you have to investigate. The main goal. In control substance screening, control sub- substance prescription screening is to move from feelings to facts, to move from subjectivity to objectivity. When somebody comes to you and says, Why did you not fill this prescription or why did you fill it? to say, Oh, well, I felt that it was okay or I felt that it was not okay isn't sufficient. Feelings aren't good enough. There has to be some objectivity. So we look at a prescription. And we ask, if we don't feel good about it, are the addresses of the pharmacy, the patient, and the prescriber in the same three-digit zip code? We have all of that information. We ask ourselves, is another person at this same address who lives with this patient also using this same medication? There are a variety of other objective facts that are available to us in the computer system that can start to cause us to either feel worse about what we first identified as a problem or to feel better about it. And based on that, and there are a number of ways of doing this, uh, There are, there, are and if you just Google a variety of ways of screening control substance prescriptions, you'll find that the more positive information you have, the more easy that the easier it is to turn a red flag into a green flag. And the less good information you have, factual information, the more difficult it is. And you may come to the point where you just say, I am sorry, I'm not able to fill this prescription. It's important for me to say that I like pharmacists to say i am not able to not i refuse to nobody's refusing to do anything it's just an inability based on the lack of factual information your hands are tied of course when that information is conveyed to the patient nothing disparaging toward the prescriber should be said nothing disparaging about the drug nothing disparaging about the patient believe it or not I'm sure everybody listening to this will believe it. Pharmacists and technicians have said things like, this is a terrible drug and should just never be used. Or this doctor is committing crimes, committing malpractice. Or to the patient, you're a drug addict. That's all actionable. That's slanderous uh, information and should not be said. It's just, I'm very sorry until I get these Questions I have clarified, I am not able to fill this prescription. Patients have a right to an explanation like that. They have a right to be apologized to for the inconvenience of it. But until that explanation is provided, and it may never be, the pharmacist can't. It's not won't. It's can't fill the prescription.
2: Words really do matter. I, I, I love what you're saying there, David. The uh, you know the overall act of making an informed decision you need information to make an informed decision all of a sudden it sounds so easy right it's not Um, you know based on observations there's there's been numerous uh, uh, accounts again observational of uh, times when pharmacy staff or or pharmacists will say well you know there's something going on here in in their heads and and uh, we'll say well you know we'll we'll say we don't have this in stock And that, you know, that can only get somebody as far as uh, a person coming into a pharmacy not realizing that you could probably get it within 24 to 36 hours with the old 222 form for controlled substance, uh, you know, C2s and whatnot. Um, So a step further, you know, in in strategically thinking would be possibly uh, offering a partial fill of the C2, you know, the, the remainder within 72 hours, you know, of course, abiding by all laws. Um, what are your thoughts on that? You know, that whole scenario of uh, not having it in stock saying that anyway, uh, as compared to giving a partial fill, as compared to saying, I just need more information. Where, where, What would you say there, David?
0: I'd say one time and one time only. If that. Mm-hmm. If we were talking 10 years ago, when I had less concern about the hazard to pharmacists of... Regulatory compliance with opioid prescriptions, I would have said 10 years ago, Mark, go ahead and do it. This is for the benefit of patients. We need to do this. Uh, Today, I'm very reluctant to say that to pharmacists because I am not sure the regulators understand the benevolent intent of pharmacists in, in doing that. But even if it is done, a 72-24 hour, up to a 72-hour supply, that's that's on that, that's under the unable to supply to provide pharmacists who are unable to provide the full supply of medication can provide a 72-hour supply of a Schedule two and then uh, dispense the balance uh, within the 72 hours. So um, DEA has said it's permissible to do that. I would say do it one time. If a patient comes back again on a Saturday afternoon as they did before with the same sort of dilemma presented by a prescription, then that patient has made the decision. I get it that patients work during the week and Saturday may be the most convenient time for them to to come to the pharmacy to have their prescriptions filled and that they bring prescriptions that have questions that need to be resolved and that their prescriber may not be reachable on Saturday afternoon. They need to take some responsibility for not putting the pharmacist in the position of having to decide whether to provide this this, uh, partial supply to hold the patient over. So I would say at some time, 10 years ago, I would never have said this but sometimes today we have to use some tough love and say, I'm sorry, last month you came here with a prescription that had these same concerns that you and I discussed. I gave you a 72-hour supply, partial supply, to get you by until I could talk with your prescriber. Now you've brought me a prescription that has similar, if not the same concerns, and I just can't do it this time. You're gonna have to wait. You're gonna have to wait until Monday, when I can contact your prescriber or whenever it is and get these resolved without my giving you the partial supply, because I just don't have confidence that the regulators will understand the circumstances of that sort of benevolent activity by a pharmacist.
2: Absolutely. It's you know, it's running that fine line, like we said earlier. You know, clinical and law—the the overlap. It's it's not an intersection. It's a parallel set of lines. So, right. I hear you there. Um, you know, one thing you mentioned earlier, David, it 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 caught my ear. I was talking about stocking products. So, you know, let's go there for for especially for the pharmacists and, and whether owners, whether PICs, managers, whatever. Even if floating for a day in a random place, you when you're there, you're in charge, right? Uh, So when a pharmacist decides not to keep um, an opioid agonist such as buprenorphine, especially there, we're usually talking the milligram MAT products, uh, or even an opioid antagonist, such as naloxone, um, if, if choosing not to keep them in stock, are there any legal ramifications there? Uh, and perhaps, um, you know, not necessarily to piggyback on it, but really just thinking outside the box here too. Have you ever observed uh, any issues in the past with other medications where there's these moral implications and, and beliefs and whatnot that are, are real on all sides? You know, things like plan B, over-the-counter syringes, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, what's your thoughts there for us?
0: Well, I don't really think there are any legal requirements to carry any medication other than in a couple of jurisdictions where there are requirements to have Plan B, for example, available. There are drug shortages, of course. And you never know whether when a pharmacy says, I don't have this available, it's because they just had a run on it from 10 patients yesterday and their new supply hasn't come. It's not that they've made a policy of not having it. I've heard many pharmacists say, I don't sympathize with it. I don't like it, but I can appreciate it. Say something like, I don't stock those drugs because I don't don't want those people in my pharmacy. Okay. Well, the phrase those people is something that just, uh, when I'm in a bad mood, <laughs> really sets me off because I could be one of those people, Mark, you could be one of those. I don't people. know if you
2: need to be in a bad mood to have that feeling, David.
0: <laughs> we can all be one of those people. People in my family could be one of those people. And so
2: let me give you an example of that one. And this is from a, a local pharmacist to to where I live uh, was calling a a prescriber's office. Uh, now, keep in mind, there's a lot of uh, interprofessional folks in healthcare that are doing amazing things to improve and save lives. This is one instance. But one instance in a local area here, a local pharmacist was calling a, a prescriber's office and was asking about uh, buprenorphine products uh, in, in the opioid use disorder realm, opioid addiction, and, and her was told that same exact thing. So what I didn't tell you here, David, was that, you know, you know why the pharmacist chose to call that prescriber's office? because that prescriber was the one who was prescribing the prescription opioid for pain and high risk doses to begin with. Yeah. I, 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 your tone just to, one word, your tone told me already that you've heard it before too. And, and you know, what a path. Um, this isn't the do no harm for all of us healthcare professionals. This is, this is more on the human side. So yeah, you know, thank you for the, those, those thoughts there too. I, I we may have, uh, Provoke some nerves there for some listeners out there today, but uh, all, all in good faith, right? Uh, so here, here's, I want to give you an example. Um, this is for everybody of like, you know, we all have our stories. If we work in a pharmacy, it's working with the public, whether you're at the fast food restaurant or a pharmacy, you're going to have stories, right? So here's a more uh, on the clinical law intersection, paralleling side, uh, I once uh, as a, a licensed pharmacist in a community pharmacy had a, a prescription called in by a prescriber's office, uh, supposedly, uh, oh, and left as a voicemail. Well, once I got to getting the voicemail on the recording, you know, when the eight phones are ringing and there's three humans in the building, we've all been there. Uh, once I got to the voicemail and I transcribed it, I, 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 it stopped me. It stopped me in my tracks because it was dictated absolutely perfectly. And I thought, good golly, this is almost like a red flag, maybe a pink flag. I'm like, nothing's done perfectly. Who does this? I, You know, meaning that everything was included, you know, every, every part of every DEA number, everything was in line with the prescription pad perfectly. I never had to move my hand and something was up. So I decided to uh, check on the phone number that was provided for the prescriber's office. And I just checked the uh, good old Dr. Google, the other Dr. G uh, and, and uh, Dr. Google let me know that it was the Baltimore Zoo and I thought, oh my goodness what are we going down here um, so the reason I'm giving this example other than including a zoo in our conversation here today because there's pharmacy zoos out there too right um, after that experience as it as it went on I ended up in a scenario of being in a in a courtroom uh, as a witness uh, involved in the case because those was obvious eventual obvious as per what the judge said um, you know, legal issues going on here with quote-unquote fake prescriptions in this case being called in I, it, it, amazing experience overall quite frankly but what what would you say the experience is like for a pharmacist who ends up in those same shoes how, how would you describe that of uh you know perhaps not on personal observation but uh you know in talking to others as well too what is it like for a, a pharmacist to involve end up being involved in a case uh, in that regard
0: Well, I think a lot of pharmacists who testify in circumstances like that are surprised at the adversarial nature of the proceedings. I have heard from some pharmacists who have told me that they served as a witness in some sort of litigation, not an expert witness, but a fact witness. Here's what happened. And they didn't realize that the defense attorney's job is going to be to discredit the pharmacist. The the defense attorney's job is going to be to attack the pharmacist. That's what they do. That's, That's how they defend their client. And it's not personal. It's not something to get upset about. It's not something to get defensive about. That's just the way it is. I would say to anyone who's anticipating an opportunity to testify in court, Don't look at this as something that's going to be enjoyable. It will be informative, but it's not gonna be a fun thing. It's important because courts need to know the facts and pharmacists know the facts and can provide them. But it is an adversarial proceeding. It may not be pleasant, but it's important. So go ahead and do the best you can. Don't get upset, don't get defensive. Don't be reactive if there is some sort of uh, implication that you don't know what you're talking about. The defense attorney's just doing her or his job.
2: Nothing personal, right? Um you know in, when the helmet is on or in the heat of the moment, it's hard to remember that, I'm sure for many. Uh, but it is important to remember that. so so thank you for that. Um, you know, some of these, uh, the fact checkers, the, I, I think in an upcoming episode here, of the pain pod, uh, probably going to be reviewing things like prescription drug monitoring programs or PDMPs. So uh, perhaps one of my, one of my final uh, more clinical slash pharmacy law questions here for you. What's your thoughts on, on PDMPs or whatever we call them state to state, of course, as far as utilization in pharmacy practice?
0: Well, I have a lot of thoughts and you're just going to have to probably shut me up because I have, um, I'm not a huge fan of PDMPs. And the main reason is because I hear pharmacists and prescribers, they have told me that they use the PDMP report as a reason to justify denying medication to a patient. That's not what PDMPs are for. PDMPs are a tool, just one of many tools that are available to prescribers, pharmacists, and others to make a decision about the legitimacy of prescription. PDMPs address a small piece of the drug diversion and abuse problem, and that is doctor shopping. Is this a person who has gone to many, many other prescribers and perhaps many, many other pharmacies, doctor shopping and pharmacy shopping? You can tell that from a PDMP, but the data suggest to us that that's only a small part of the problem of diversion and abuse, that many people who divert control substances, abuse control substances, have the disease of addiction to control substances, acquire them not through doctor shopping, but through some other way. If you look at the data, the studies of PDMPs, they stretch pretty far to 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 try to show that the PDMPs are effective. In fact, PDMPs were implemented, and when they were, the uh, the hospitalizations, emergency room visits increased. Now that doesn't necessarily mean there's any causality whatsoever. But when you go to PDMP managers and ask them, what evidence do you have that can support your assertion that your program is effective? They will actually, I've had two of them reply to my question, justify the value of your program. What they say is, well, when we implemented the PDMP, the prescriptions for opioids declined. And I asked them, both of them separately, how many of those prescriptions for opioids that would have been honored or would have been issued were for people who really did need them? but who didn't get them because the PDMP got in the way of them. And both of these managers said, oh, none, we'd never do that. Well, obviously they just don't know. I'm afraid that PDMPs get in the way of effective pain management for people who need the medications because they are overvalued. The reports are overvalued. Just a couple of other anecdotes I would say about PDMPs, if I may. Hey, the
2: mic is yours,
0: man. <laughs> okay, sorry to uh, a former student of mine. Called me one day and said, "I just want to tell you, I had an interesting thing happen with the PDMP. A prescription was presented for uh, extended-release opioid. I well, I don't don't need it's the big one, and the patient said she would wait. We filled the prescription, we put it into we we." sent it through her insurance. We put it in the will call area. She never showed up. Our policy at our pharmacy is not to leave Schedule II opioids in will call overnight. So we returned it to stock. We didn't know what had happened. We returned it to stock. Several days later, she appeared, something had happened. Can't remember what it was. She wanted her medicine. So we filled it again. Uh, we, we, had, we had reversed the charge, but we filled it again and we gave it to her. Off she went. A couple of months later, I started to have some concerns about the way she was using her opioids. So I decided to check the PDMP and lo and behold, the report said that we had filled that prescription twice. In fact, we, uh, at that both times, the time that we had put it back into stock, apparently our report went in To the pdmp indicating we had filled it when we had but we had reversed the charge in some way so these are not perfect systems and uh, there are there's also the matter of fake ids Uh, you have one person pretending to be 10 different people with fake ids that are relatively easy to acquire and doctors offices and pharmacies are not like TSA at the airport where they can tell the difference between a fake ID and a genuine ID. And people go all around in a college town, Morgantown, West Virginia, Gainesville, Florida. You can get a fake ID easy enough. You can order it on the internet from some foreign country. So people who want to divert and abuse controlled substances are going to figure out a way to do it. PDMPs don't necessarily stand in the way of that. And I do have a concern that they give a false feeling of security to prescribers and pharmacists who look at a PDMP, see that it's clean and think to themselves, well, I had some concerns, even maybe some major concerns about this patient's use of opioids, but I checked the PDMP and it's a clean report. So I'm gonna shelve those concerns that I had. Not a good idea because the PDMP only addresses one little piece of the diversion abuse problem.
2: David, I promise when I said similar stories in the past that I did not steal your story. <laughs> this is the first time I've heard another human being propose this preposterous fake ID scenario. In fact, um, you know, here in West Virginia, we we had a three-hour drug diversion CE requirement for a licensure every two years, and it just got changed to two hours. Um, That being said, I've developed some of those uh, presentations and I literally include, I know my pharmacy peeps start looking at me when they see the slides, but I include information on ID checkers and scanners. Are we bouncers? No. Are we notary publics? Well, sometimes, but that's another license, right? Um, But that part is real. In fact, I've even, I remember being at a, a rather large CDC conference meeting, whatever, one time and bringing that up to the folks that were talking about PDMPs. And just bringing it down to reality here, not the 50,000 foot view, the here on the boots on the ground view of saying, yeah, but we don't really actually check IDs other than looking to see, ah, the picture looks about the same, right? Because that's not our thing in clinical care. Uh, so I, I, I really appreciate what you're saying there. That that's uh, it's so comforting hearing it from someone else for once. Uh, now as, as we're wrapping up here today, uh, there, there's one or two things I always want to ask every pain pod guest. So those in the audience, if you're if you're eyeing it up someday, start thinking about your answers too. Uh, but you know a lot of things we talked about here today are painful in people's lives. So so David, how would you define pain?
0: Well, the way I define pain is pain is when the patient says it hurts. That's pain. Now, from a more professional perspective, what I would do is refer to the Federation of State Medical Board's definition of pain and their model guidelines, model policy for the use of controlled substances in the treatment of pain that has been adopted by most states. So I don't have that definition at the tip of my tongue. That's the regulatory definition that works best for me. But my definition, my personal definition is if the patient says it hurts, then it's pain.
2: You're giving me flashbacks to the, uh, the, the beginning of the COVID pandemic. This, this story was actually one of our previous pain pot episodes, but um, at the beginning of the pandemic, I'm on a gurney on Friday the 13th at the beginning of the pandemic and being asked how do I would, would rate my pain. And I'm like, I'm on a gurney <laughs> at Friday the 13th in an ER. What do you – I mean, like negative five? What do you think? Anyway, so <laughs> – Thank you for your, your viewpoints there, too. Um, uh, one last question here for you. Um, what's your favorite pain medication?
0: Sure. Obviously, it would depend on the type of pain we're talking about, but uh, it, my, my favorite pain medication is ibuprofen.
2: We're sweet and to the point. Uh, You know NSAIDs come with their baggage too. Oh my goodness! Like every medication, right? Sure. Um, So thank you. I I, you know succinctness is always good, and I like how you actually even included there. Well, it kind of depends on what's going on too, as it should, right? Um, Well, David, I really want to thank you for your time here today uh, and joining us here on the Pain Pod. I, I think. The words, the words that you were sharing could be very, very helpful uh, to all of us in the world of pharmacy and beyond even in healthcare overall. So thank you very much for your time. It's our most precious resource and uh, look forward to chatting with you in the
0: future too, of course, sir. Wonderful pleasure to have been with you, Mark. Thank you so much.
2: Alrighty. And to uh, our pain pod nation out there, if that's the words we're going with, uh, looking forward to uh, reaching everybody in our next episode of the pain pod coming up. Well, in just a little bit of time, of course, too. So um, come one, come all to the pain pod. That's what we always say. And I look forward to the next episode as this one's been a
1: wonderful adventure. If you'd like to join Mark on The Pain Pod, send us an email to publisher at pharmacypodcast.com. And make sure to share the show and subscribe on your favorite podcast directory. Thanks for listening.